Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all. Uh, this morning, we're carrying on in the book of Romans, and our scripture passage comes from Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 12 through the end of, end of the chapter. Um, we've seen a lot in Romans so far. There's been a lot of territory we have covered, and there's still a lot to go. But this passage this morning comes just after Paul has made this somewhat bold claim that we can have peace with God. But, but how can we have peace with God? How, how does this actually happen? What's sort of the foundation, the underpinning of having peace with God? And that's what Paul turns to today. And, and what he does, in a sense, is he goes from a, a first-person narrative to sort of a third-person overview of all that is sort of true in the world, a big picture. Um, one commentator has referred to this, these verses as a chiseled masterpiece of picturing exactly how God saves his people. How is it that we can have peace with God? Even when we experience pain, when we experience sin, how can we move to this, to this peace? And so at this sort of almost transition point in the book of Romans, we'll see Paul take up these themes. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's word? We'll read Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners." So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, there is much in this passage, this picture of how the world works, how salvation works. And Lord, there is, there's logic here that you have given us. There is a progression here of thought. Lord, as we study this, would you, would you set this truth on fire so that we encounter it by the power of your spirit, that we would know anew the beauty of your gospel truth. Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts together this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. How do you make sense of devastation? When tragedies happen, when devastation occurs, how do we make sense of this? 
And, and maybe one way of, of thinking through that, if you just think through the news stories that have captured our, attendance, our attention in the last um, months, the, the Surfside Apartments, the condominiums, you know, that, that tragedy had happened. Um, and for many of us, our first thoughts as we sort of have this mix of grief and sadness is, is, is why? How did that happen? If you were like me, you were reading articles about, you know, meetings that happened years ago and who was supposed to fix this. We want, we want an answer. We want to know why and how these things happen. Mixed with that grief and sadness, we want answers to, to why there's this devastation that we encounter. And it's not just an abstract thing, not that that story is abstract for many people, but that devastation really is, is a personal thing. Why is there death in this world? Why is there death? Why is there sin? Why, why is this sort of the world that we live in, as sometimes it's been called, the, the wreckage of Eden? Why, why, do we, why is it this way? Why is there this, this spread of sin and death? How, how did this come about, and how can what is lost be restored? That's really the, the, the heart of this text. It goes to those deep questions that aren't abstract but are personal, that reflect our own loss, our own experience of sin, and say, how can we move from this destruction to, to the life that this is describing? And, and if we follow what Paul has said so far in Romans 5, 1 through 11, and he says we can have peace with God, that, that can sound a little bit audacious, that we can have peace with God in the midst of this this death, this sin. How could this be? And that's where Paul picks up his argument this morning and, and sort of zooms out to this sort of redemptive historical big picture of what happens story. And so to understand that this morning, to understand how we too can experience this moving from death to life that Romans talks about, we'll, we'll, we'll dive in here. And this first point, this first way of looking at this text is that we move out of the death of Adam. Verse 12, and we'll spend, we'll spend some time on verse 12 because it really does set up everything that is, is coming, jumps in with this historical cosmic scope, this almost panoramic view of, of history of how all of humanity is affected by what happens here just in this first part of this verse. Therefore, reaching back to what Paul has just said, that we can have peace with God, and how can that all be? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. There's a, there's a close progression there. Sin came into the world how? Through one man. We read about that this morning in Genesis 3. Adam sinned. He brought sin into the world. One man's act set this whole reaction, if you will, off. The sin of, of one man. And, and then what happened? Death through sin. Death through sin. Death is, is the result of sin. And, and we know that. We, we've read Genesis 3. We probably know that progression. But that's important to remind ourselves of this morning, that, that death is the result of sin. It's not the reverse. Death isn't just sort of this, this normal thing that we have to come to terms with. No, death is the result of sin. It's not good. Scripture talks about it as, as an enemy. Yes, it's an enemy we overcome, but it is still deeply wrong. And it's the result of this sin. And, and when what happens? And so death spread to all men. This wasn't confined just to Adam, but all men encounter this, this death. It spreads as this contagious thing that goes into all of us. And this maps with the story that we see in Scripture. As soon as they leave the garden... 
what happens. Sin goes with them. Sin is part of this human condition now. And that's what Paul reminds us of this morning, that it's spread to all men. As Adam took that fruit and said, God, what you have decreed is not what is best, and put himself in that position, he brought us all into this reality. But, but how did this all happen? These next words are, are important. It says this, because all sinned. Now, now, what does that mean, because all sinned? Well, we, we know we all sinned. Paul has already made that point in Romans 3.23. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that that's part of our story. We know our sin. But I think there's something just deeper that Paul is getting at here. He's not merely saying that all of us have inherited sort of a, a proclivity to sin or a propensity to sin. We're not just sort of bent a little bit, so we're probably going to sin. No, because all sin in the context of what Paul is saying here seems to point a little bit different. It points not just to the fact that we all sin, but we've actually inherited sin. We've inherited guilt from Adam. It's been, to use a theological word, imputed to us. We're born guilty because of what Adam has said here. Now, why would we say that from, from these, these verses? Well, we need to look at the context. We're going to jump down for a moment to verse 18. And it says this, Therefore, as one trespass, this is talking about Adam's one trespass, led to condemnation for all men. It seems the text there makes the case that one that one sin led to the condemnation. That in and of itself was enough guilt for all of us, that we inherited this sin. It was imputed to us. We also see in verse 14 that there's this reality that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, think with me for a moment here. What's missing between Adam and Moses in God's redemptive story? Well, the Mosaic law, right? The law hasn't been given yet, and yet what happens during that period of time? Well, people die, and they die because of sin, and this is how this works. It's a picture of the fact that they had inherited this sin, this guilt from, from Adam. All have sinned. Even the, the, the tense, the way the, that Paul chooses this because all sin phrase, the way he sets it up, refers in, in the Greek to a past sort of singular action. It doesn't usually refer to sort of all of the sin that people would do. It's focused more on one actual event, one act that set off all of this destruction that we experience. As 1 Corinthians 15 and 22 says, in Adam, all die. This is the reality that we have. We've inherited this original sin, as theologians call this. Our Westminster Confession puts it this way. In chapter 6, it says, Our first parents, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity. That's us. All their posterity. We inherited their guilt. That's what Paul is saying here. We are in Adam, so to speak. We are joined to him so that his guilt is, is our guilt. Now, if you're noticing here in your text, Paul brings this up, and then he sort of gets sidetracked, which isn't uncommon for Paul. He sort of, something else comes to mind that he thinks, oh, I need to talk about this. And so he leaves this thought and won't pick it up as completely till verse 18. 
And so in verse 13, he sort of takes this other sort of objection that someone might have, this other thought that someone might have about the law. And he says this, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So talking about the Mosaic law, when it was given, there was still sin in the world. And again, he's pointing out the fact that this sin is inherited. Yes, there was a law written on our hearts in this time. God's people had the law written on their hearts. Uh, In Romans chapter 2, there's that reality. But all are still sinning because of what has been inherited to them. And then he says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. It's not that they weren't sinning. It's not that they weren't guilty. But there is no sort of law to, to invoice sin by. Sin becomes known as the law is, is apparent. But even in that time, we know people were punished for their sin. We just need to look to Genesis 6 through 9 and, and the story of the flood where there is judgment for sin. And the result of all of this is that in verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Not like the transgression in that they didn't have necessarily even this this clear guidance of what not to do except what was written on their hearts. Not like Adam's sin because it was not the original sin that set all of this, this off. And And it's worth noting here that this is not just sort of talking about vague spiritual things. This is a historic, actual Adam who sinned and set this off. Just as Christ is a historical, actual Christ who will remedy this in a moment in this text. But this bears the question, as we we read this, as we look at this, there's there's a part of us that says this isn't fair. If we're we're true to sort of our, our, our American individualistic way of thinking, we look at this and say, but that's that's not my mess. I don't know if you've already been around little people, maybe sub-12, and they, they have this wonderful phrase that says, that's not my mess. Like, I, I didn't clean that up. Or, I'm not going to clean that up because I didn't, I didn't cause that, that mess. Some of us might come to this text and say, well, where's my shot at Eden? Let's move Adam over. Let me have my shot, and I'll fix this for us. But the reality of the biblical story is that's just, we would fall in the same way Adam, Adam would. But this, this reality is that it's, it's not about fairness in our sort of way of thinking. It's about this is the way God has set up the world. This is the reality that you find yourself in, whether you think it's fair or not. You've inherited sin. That's what Scripture is telling you. You can wrestle with the fairness, but that's wrestling with how God has moved and how God is working for his salvation. The theological term for this is is headship or or federal headship, where we are in Adam by birth. He is our our head, our our sort of representative, so that what is true of him is true of us. And unfortunately for us, that's his his sin. There's a somewhat classic illustration of this that is a little odd, but I'm going to share it with you. It comes from Thomas Goodwin. He came up with this about the 1600s. And he said, "In, in, in history, there are two giants. One is Adam, and one is Christ. Now, all of us, he envisions these giants have these these belts. I know it's kind of weird, but they have these belts. And there are sort of hooks on these belts that all of humanity is is hooked onto. And by birth, you're you're hooked onto the giant Adam. Just that's how it is. And yet there's this other giant that Goodwin points out, who is Christ, who we can also be joined to. And that's where this text goes. It goes to the reality that even though this is, this is our story, that we are under Adam, we are in Adam, there's something we can move to that is, that is better. 
And we'll get to that good news in just, just a moment. But it, it's worth noting just a, a few things from these first verses as we seek to apply them to our life. One is just that, that death is, is unavoidable. Death is unavoidable. We, we know that. We've encountered that. But this is the reality that, that we face. This is the reality that we live in. And death is unavoidable because of, because of sin. And that sin is our, our guilt. We are actually guilty. And maybe some of you have sort of managed to skate through life in some way and sort of not really come to terms with your guilt. Somehow you think you've, you've lived a good life, even though Scripture would challenge that. But up underneath even that is the reality that, that you've inherited this guilt. This is what you were born with and something that needs to be, to be dealt with. We, like Adam, are hiding from God. We, like Adam, have said, what you have said, God, is not, is not what I want. I don't think what you have decreed is what is best. And we've gone our own ways in response to this sin that we've inherited. And so we need, in the midst of this, this other giant in history, this Jesus who steps in. And we see this in verse 15 where we come and see that we can become into the life of Christ, come into that life. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Paul, throughout these next sort of three to four verses, is going to do a sort of a compare and contrast. Adam and Christ, what are the similarities? What are their differences? And it begins with this, this free gift, which again, again, moves our eyes to say, this is, this is something that is given to us. It is not something we deserve or earn, but it's given. It's not like the trespass. Why? For if many died through one man's trespasses, one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. We see at least two things to compare. One is just the, the amount. It's, it's one sin that set all of this off. And what is it? It's this, this one act of God's mercy and his grace that abounds so much more. It's not like the trespass. There's a contrast of degree and result. One brought death. The other one is going to bring life. And what's operating, what's moving all of this is this free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, that abounded, abounded for many. That is a, a, a big word, and we'll talk more about abounding later in this, in this text, but that's, that's grace. Now, now, what is grace? Maybe we've, we've been around the church long enough to have some of maybe the, the pat answers, we know something about it. I think many of us, though, struggle to, with this idea. We think grace is primarily a, a thing that God sort of has in his heavenly storeroom, and he, he dispenses it to us as he sees fit. That's, a, that's a, maybe not quite a, a fine, fine-tuned view of what grace is. Grace most clearly in the New Testament is not a thing but a person. And we see this in places like Titus 2.11, where the writer there says that the grace of God appeared. And who is he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. The grace of God appeared. Even here in this text, as we talk about the grace of God, it's not this distant thing. It comes in and through Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. One theologian, Michael Reeves, has put it this way. He says, grace is really just a shorthand way of speaking about the personal and loving kindness out of which ultimately God gives himself. God gives himself. He gives Jesus, this is what comes into the story and changes everything, reverses all the devastation and destruction. It is Jesus who comes as a gift. 
Verse 16, this gift of Jesus. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's trespass. What came from that one trespass? Well, judgment. And it brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. See what, see what Paul is doing there? He's saying that one sin of Adam brought all of this condemnation. But the, the, the one act, the, the movement of Christ in his grace brought justification that covered over many trespasses. Not just that original sin, but all the trespasses that come from it, all the inherited guilt, all of the, the bentness that we move towards sin, all of our rebellion is all remedied in and through the work of Jesus, who has brought justification. This word that points to a, a declaration of being made, made right. And, and we need to see the aboundingness of this, the abounding grace. This is not just sort of a, a just get you there sort of salvation. This is God's grace super abounding over us. Maybe you know John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress. In his spiritual biography that he entitled uh, Grace Abounding, he recounts his own sort of story of coming to faith. Uh, he, he was married. He wasn't a believer at this point, And his wife was. And through reading scripture together and attending church, he sort of began to believe more and more of the gospel. But there was a part of him that still doubted. There was a part of him who still looked at his, himself and said, I, I don't think God can quite save me. And it was one verse where it says, my grace is sufficient for you. That radically changed his life. Because he realized in that moment what Paul talks about here is that grace is sufficient, not just sufficient to barely get you there, but, but to abound over your sin, to redeem you, to cleanse you of that original sin, of every sin that you have committed, to, to justify you, as it says in verse 16. And the result of that is in verse 17. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. That's the reality we still, still see in some ways, the death reigning through the one sin of Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Who's reigning there? We are. Will reign. It has a future implication. It's talking about the new heavens and the new earth in a real way. But, but that also reality begins to break in now where, where we're no longer enslaved to sin and death. That we look at death now not as sort of, we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Because we know Jesus. We know what he has done. We know that this is no longer what we are captive to, that we can reign in life. A beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. And how, how does this happen? How do, how do we get into this, this reality it's interesting, this is one of these parts in the book of Romans where we're not told a lot to, to do anything. It's really Paul just sort of saying, this is what is true. This is the reality that God is working, and this is the structure of how things are set up. And yet in this verse, there's one thing that we are called to. Middle of the verse, it says this, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. That's what this passage is. If it's asking us to do anything, it's asking us to believe that this is true and to receive the gift that is offered to us. Receive the gift of, of righteousness that is won for us by Jesus through the one man to receive it. To honestly look at your life and say, who do I belong to? Am I still hooked onto Adam? Or by God's mercy, by his grace, by him working faith in me, have I been moved over 
to the other giant, the true giant, Jesus himself. And if you've done that, to then, to then see the, the, the beauty of this, I think many of us as believers live with a, a scarcity mindset, that somehow God's grace is a scarce resource. It's not the picture we see here. It's an abounding resource. Some of us live as if somehow we need to still undo all of our past legacy in order to really belong to Christ. It's not true. God's grace is enough to move us, to redeem us, to save us. We can move past that scarcity mindset. We're no longer on probation, as it were. We have been justified because of what Christ has done. These last verses, picking up in verse 18, talk about abounding in the reign of grace, abounding in the reign of life. And really, in a sense, what these verses talk about is the, the new reality that we have of living in Adam, or not living in Adam, of now living in Christ, the new reality we have there, of flourishing, of, of reigning in life, of, of all of this beautiful, eternal life that we will experience and the realities of that that we benefit from now. It raises this question, what does it actually mean to thrive? What does it mean to thrive? I don't know if you saw this news report that came out about a week and a half ago. The polling agency Gallup does this every year or so, and it asks Americans a series of questions, and then they come up with the percentage of Americans who are thriving. And they've got their whole criteria behind that. And it might surprise you that this 59.2% of Americans currently define themselves as thriving, which is the highest it's been in 13 years. Americans are saying things are, things are going well. But, but what does it actually mean? And if you start digging into that data, you, you quickly see that our definition of thriving is about financial confidence in the future, about how strong our relationships are, about how big our 401k is, how, how much optimism we have, how much we think we have a good community around us. Now, are those components of, of human flourishing, even from Scripture? Yes, yes, there, there are parts of that that lead to, to flourishing. But what Paul points us here to is a, is a radically different definition of abounding and thriving. It's this reign of life. It's this reality of, of now seeing who we are, of being joined to Christ that we really find our, our thriving in. Look with me at verse 18. Again, some comparing and contrasting. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so this one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's worth noting that throughout this text, both death and life have sort of the, the normal physical aspects to them, but they also point to spiritual realities. And the life here is not merely just the eternal life, but actually that, that abundant life we talk about. This is the life that he gives us. This is the life that is extended to us that we can, can move into and enjoy. And, and how do we do this? Look at verse 19. If verse 19 is not in this text, none of this is true. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. All of this comes down to Jesus' obedience. Jesus coming from the, the, and coming and, and obeying perfectly. Sometimes this is called his, his active obedience, his obedience that wasn't just sort of sitting there passively, but actively did the will of the Father. 
Think of the Trinity, the Father loving the Son through the Spirit eternally coming and, and sending the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to do the will of the Father so that all of this can be true. And he obeyed. He learned obedience, as Hebrews 5.8 says. As he, as he grew, as he developed, he, he obeyed his Father consistently and perfectly and became obedient, as Philippians 2 says, even to death on a cross. That's what undergirds this. That's what's the, the very bulwark that holds us up. It's that Christ obeyed. He was righteous where we were not righteous. He was the new humanity, the new Adam who comes, who was a type of the one to come. A shadow, Adam was merely a shadow of Christ and the fullness that he brings. It all rests on his obedience, his righteous life. Now, there's one last objection that someone inserts here, or Paul envisions someone inserting in verse 20. It says this, Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The objection someone might have is saying, well, if this is all true, where does the law fit in? Where does God's law fit in if all of this is, is grace and, and all of this is dependent on Him? Well, it's interesting. What, what does he say? The law is not simply there as a, as a try-hard or do-better mechanism. The law comes in and, and sin increases. Now, now, why does that happen? Well, on one level, it happens because now we actually can, can know what sin is. We have sort of the, the guideline, the, the, the truth that says this is sin and this is, this is righteousness. It comes in that way. But we'll see also later in Romans that sin has a way, when, when the law is given, sin springs to life, Romans 7, and produces in me every sinful desire, every covetous desire, as it'll say in Romans 7. So the law actually works, and the law can't come in, as it were, and stem the tide of human sinfulness. The law wasn't up to that. The trajectory of humans were to sin. They were sinners, and the law comes in, and what happens? It just increases the sin. We need the Savior. We need the one man, the Jesus Christ, through whom all of this can happen so that something actually changes. Verse 20, so that as, in sin, so that as sin reigned in death, this ex existence where sin is sort of in this sphere of death, having dominion, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the reality that we see that, that God goes out and, and, and changes things, that God moves towards sin. His very heart goes out to it in and through Jesus so that we are redeemed. And this is, this is the beauty of looking through a book like Romans because we come to passages like this and we have to look at this again, even if we've seen this thousands of times. Or if we're seeing this for the first time, putting some of these pieces together, that, that this is where our hope is. This is what it means to have life and thriving. This is what it means to move from the devastation of sin and death to life. It's, it's through Jesus. And that's wonderful and beautiful and, and something that is so richly true because if you look at this passage, what's, what's fascinating is, is at all the great moments, how does it happen? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It happens twice in this, in this text, both in verse 17 and 21. It's, it's, it's Jesus that accomplishes all of this. It's how all of this comes about. So what does this mean for, for you and I as we, as we look at our lives, as we look at how we can, can move forward with this? 
Well, it's the reality that God's grace superabounds in our life. In verse 21, when the law comes in, the language literally means superabound. It sort of, it just abounds again and again and again. When sin shows up, grace abounds. And that should almost make you feel uncomfortable because we know how heinous our sin is. We know how destructive it is. And so for then the gospel to come and say that it superabounds, that it just sort of covers it again and again, it, it, it abounds. Every time sin is there, grace just sort of manifests and, and covers it. That's, that's the picture here of what, is, what Paul is, is driving at. And, and we need to just, in some ways, be okay with that sort of reality because that is the reality of what God is, God is saying. Now, in, in Romans 6, yes, it's going to get in that we shouldn't sin so grace that abounds, all of that. But that reality that we, we live in obedience doesn't change the fact that grace abounds. Grace abounds. That's the most comforting, beautiful thing because if grace does not abound, then we're hopeless. If grace doesn't abound, we're still in Adam. If grace does not abound, then the trespass that we inherit is still our story. But the beauty here is that through Jesus, grace has abounded. Christ obeyed. We're no longer on probation. We are fully accepted, fully loved by our Father, in and through the person and work of Jesus. And so this passage asks us to do what? To receive this. To receive this, maybe for the first time, but, but also for the thousandth time to realize that this is what is true of you in and through Jesus, that you can receive the gospel of hope. Pastor Allen, a few weeks ago, quoted from Jack Miller, but it bears repeating this morning. He says, cheer up. You're worse off than you ever dared imagine. And then he adds, cheer up. You're far more loved than you ever dared hope. Love those last words, ever dared hope. Because I think there's a lot of us that look at a passage like this, and we know the devastation of sin. We know our own sin, and we, we don't even dare hope that this could be true. Brothers and sisters, this is what God gives us this morning, that this is true, that grace has abounded, that as we come in faith and receive it, it is ours. The righteousness of Christ is ours. God now looks at us as if he looks at his son, his perfect son who he has been loving eternally through the power of the Spirit. That is the abounding grace of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, Lord, would you show us the beauty again of this, this passage? Lord, there is so much truth and wonder here. Lord, would we meditate on this? Would we delight in your obedience, delight in your righteousness? Would this passage spur us on to live for you, to reflect the love that you have given to us, to share it with others, to, to be people who are so amazed by the gospel that people wonder at the, the thriving, the life that you have given us? Lord, would you do that now this week? We ask this in your name. Amen.